Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I have been told that I have the gift of making complicated things simple and to make simple things complicated. It would be easy to complicate tonight's two psalms, but they don't need to be complicated. They're very understandable on their face. They're very direct, and Psalm 27 and 28 also share thematically a whole lot of information, so it seems like we can look at both of them tonight. And I shouldn't have to extrapolate a great deal because we have seen in the first 26 of these psalms the themes that David usually turns to when he sits and writes these psalms. In 28, he's going to say that his songs, that his writing is a way of thanksgiving to God. So now we understand some of David's motivation again for why he wrote these psalms. It is a form of worship for David that he writes these words that extol the glory and the blessings of God and the grace of God, the loving kindness of God, and he sees it as a form of thanksgiving to God. And I like that very much because it does demonstrate that David's art, for lack of a better word, was utilized and has been utilized for these 3,000 years as a means of not only helping us, encouraging us in our Christian walk, but that God also used David's art to glorify himself, and David used it as a sign of worship and thanksgiving. Psalm 27 and 28, David is also going to be talking about the temple of God. Now, it would be real easy to just read past his references to the temple of God and just assume that when he says that he longs to dwell in the house of God and in the temple of God, it would be easy to think, well, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. But the temple in Jerusalem didn't exist when he wrote these things. In fact, it was his intention to build a temple for God. Turn back to 2 Samuel real quick. If you keep your finger there in the Psalms and turn back to 2 Samuel 7, you'll see David's motivation. David's motivation comes from a good place. He is living in a magnificent house of cedar fit for a king, and yet the ark of God is still dwelling in essentially the tabernacle that the Israelites carried for the 40 years in the wilderness, which David refers to here and in the Psalms as the tent, the tent of God. Here I'm going to start reading at verse 1. It says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, 
Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. If you know this story, you know that that was a mistake on Nathan's part. Because verse 4 says that that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who is going to build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this very day. But I have been moving around in a tent, even in a tabernacle. And wherever I have gone with the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And then this is where we find the Davidic covenant. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, so that you may be ruler over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day when I commanded judges to be over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares that the Lord Yahweh will make a house for you. Obviously, he's speaking here of a dynasty, not a physical house. David said, I'm going to build a house for God. And then God says, did I ever ask you to do that? And then says, I'm going to build you a house. And to understand the sort of house, the kind of dynasty he's speaking of, verse 12 says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. So after you're dead, David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. That's the messianic promise of a descendant of David ruling over the kingdom of David. Okay, so with all that background, that gives us some sense of the fact that the temple that was ultimately built by Solomon did not exist yet. So what is David talking about in these two psalms when he makes reference to the temple of God? He does, as I said, make reference to the tent of God. So he's clearly speaking of the tent of meeting. But he is also going to extrapolate poetically about his desire to be in the glory of God. And I think that's something we can all relate to when we look at the course of this world and the trials of this world. If you have the heart of God, if you have the spirit of God, you should inwardly be longing to be with God and to behold the glory of God and to finally experience the loving kindness of God without measure and and to know that you're finally eternally accepted, that is something that I think we all long for. Or am I the only one? <laughs> I think we all long to be with God and to be in that place where there's no more sorrow or sickness or crying and God wipes away every tear. I think that's what David is getting at here when he makes reference to being with God and to see the glory of God and to celebrate and sacrifice to God in God's temple. He cannot be referring to the physical temple in Jerusalem. So I think he is speaking poetically of the temple he wanted to build, 
but ultimately the temple of God in heaven. So with that cleared up, there are really no other complications in this psalm. And yet, I will likely find a way to complicate it. So. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So theologically, where does light come from? The Lord. It comes from God. Where does salvation come from? The Lord. It comes from God. But if you know that you are enlightened to understand the things of God and you know that it is God who is your surety and your salvation, the next question is obvious. Whom shall I fear? I mean, after all, what can men do to you? Jesus himself said, don't fear men who can only kill the body. But fear God who can put body and soul in hell. And so David consistently says here, since the Lord is my light and the Lord is my salvation, there's nothing I have to fear. The Lord, Yahweh, is the defense of my life. In other words, the only reason I'm alive right now is because God has protected me. God has defended me. God has preserved me from all my enemies. And in fact, if you look at Psalm 28, the very next psalm, go to verses 7 and 8, and he's going to say the same thing. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. And therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song, I shall thank him. The Lord is my strength, and he is a saving defense. Same thing. He's my salvation, and he's the defense of my life. Here in verse 8, they're just combined. He is the saving defense to his anointed. So both of these psalms, David is recognizing that the completely sovereign, all-powerful God is the only reason that he has been preserved, the only reason that he's becoming an old man, the only reason that he is the king of Israel, the only reason that his enemies have not been able to overtake him. That's verse 2. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies stumbled and fell. Well, the only explanation David can give for that is God protected me. He didn't say I was such a superior general and I was so good in my warfare and I tricked him and I outsmarted him. Instead, he's giving God all the credit for the fact that when evildoers came to destroy him, they ultimately were destroyed. They fell down. They stumbled. Verse 3, And though a host, though a huge army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. That goes back to verse 1. Who shall I fear? If you have the concept of God, then what is there to fear? Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Okay, now, those first four verses are all David saying, I have history with God. We've got history on one another, and he has already proven himself to be a faithful God. Therefore, I can look forward confidently to what's coming because, as David's going to say, I've, I am old, I have been young, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken, and I've never seen the seed begging bread. In other words, he can look back over the course of his life, and he can say, God has always provided. He has always protected me. I have seen my enemies defeated at the hand of God. Therefore, I can confidently walk forward in this life, knowing 
that that's the God who defends me. That's the God who fights for me. He is my defense, and he is my salvation. But one thing I have asked of Yahweh, one thing that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That sounds a little like Psalm 23 that ends with, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But what is the house of the Lord here? He's saying, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. But as I just read from 2 Samuel, he was living in a house of cedar. And God said, did I ever ask you to build me a house? And so there is no physical house for David to be referring to here. The temple hasn't been built yet. There is no house for God in a physical way. So I believe that David is saying that he's going to dwell in the household or in the presence of God all the days of his life. But the purpose for which he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord is to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. A temple that doesn't exist yet, and yet David knows it's going to exist. It has to exist. It just doesn't exist yet. And so David thinking forward, says, I just want to dwell in the place of God, in the house of God, in the temple of God, so that I can behold the beauty of God, and so that I can sit and think about God in his presence. That's beautiful language. I saw my brother yesterday, and we were sitting outside his shop and talking and whenever he and I get to talking, we start naturally talking about how stupid the world is right now and how upside down everything is and how so very little makes sense right now. And we agreed that were it not for the fact that we have a Christian worldview, this world would make us crazy because nothing makes sense. But only through the knowledge that God is on his throne doing whatever seems right to him, only through the knowledge that our God is in charge of human history and that everything is going exactly the way he determined it was going to go, only then can we have any confidence walking through this exceptionally stupid world. I think that's what David is getting at here. He wants to sit and think about God. He wants to meditate in the temple of God. He wants to behold the beauty of Yahweh, even in the midst of a world where hosts and armies and evildoers want to destroy him. He sets his heart back on the things of God, which is a very healthy way to go. When this world becomes too much, there's nowhere else for you to go. And just be very grateful, be very thankful that you do have the ability to turn to God, to think about the things of God, to meditate on the word of God and the promises of God. That's where we find sanity in this completely insane world. Be grateful that God gave you the ability to do that. And even all the way back at David, that's what he longs for, to behold the beauty of the Lord to meditate in his temple. Then verse 5, he starts looking forward. The first four verses, as I said, David is saying, we've got history, and you've protected me, and you've been my salvation. You've kept me on my throne. 
And then he looks forward in verse 5 and says, For in the day of trouble, God will conceal me in his tabernacle. Okay, now he's going to use the language of tabernacle and tent. And what he's saying is, in the day of trouble, the same God who dwells in the tabernacle is the same God who's going to conceal me in himself. He's going to protect me. He's going to guard me. He's going to keep me in my right mind because he's going to conceal me within himself even as my enemies come looking for me. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. You know, the Jews used to pray toward the tabernacle, wherever the tabernacle was, even in the wilderness for 40 years. The tabernacle sat in the middle of the camp, and there would be three tribes to the north and three to the south and three to the east and three to the west. And they would worship and pray toward the tabernacle. To this very day in Israel, people pray toward the temple, very much like the Muslims pray toward Mecca. And so David, all the way back here, is saying that he's going to pray toward, look toward the tabernacle of God and the tent of God which is like a touchstone constantly reminding him of the presence of God in his midst. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me, and he will lift me up on a rock. That's just his way of saying, I'm going to be secure. I'm going to be planted on a rock that's not going to shift. It's not going to change. Look again at Psalm 28, verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplications while I cry to thee for help, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy sanctuary. Same thing. It's thematic. These two psalms, David is thinking about his dependence on God, but also when he prays, when he asks God for things, when he begs God for help and protection, he does it toward the sanctuary, toward the tent, toward the physical touchstone within Israel of God in their presence. So back to verse 5 of Psalm 27, for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent he will hide me, and he will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, and I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. First part of that verse is, my head will be lifted up above my enemies. In other words, I'm going to come out the conqueror. I'm going to come out above my enemies. How can David say that so confidently? Because back in verse 3, he said, even though war rise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. And where does that confidence come from? The fact that earlier in the psalm, he said, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies all stumbled and fell. And though a host encamp around me, my heart will not fear because he knows that God is his protection and his salvation. It is God who preserves him in his own tabernacle. It is God who sets him on a rock. Therefore, his confidence, regardless of the circumstances of life, his confidence is always in God. His confidence is not in his flesh 
or his ability to make war or how many horses he has or how high his walls are, he recognizes that without God, he would have none of that. God is his surety and his security. That's why this psalm starts with, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? But then I like David's reaction. Because he's confident that he will be sitting above and lifted by God above his enemies around him, he then says, and I will offer in his tent, the very place where the Holy of Holies is, he's going to go there to the tabernacle of God to make the regular sacrifices to God to recognize that it is Yahweh himself who is preserving and protecting him and his people And then I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to Yahweh. You ever found yourself doing that? Do you find yourself doing that? Walking through the day and just suddenly a a hymn pops in your head? You can't help yourself but just sing praise to God? Why does that happen? I think that's the spirit of God stirring us up and keeping us constantly aware of the presence of God. And our awareness of his presence and his preservation in our lives causes us to want to sing to God. Happened to David. It happens to us. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. I like David's theology there. He doesn't say, you are obligated to listen to me. He recognizes, even after everything that God has done for him, that if God pays attention to him again, that's just the grace of God. That's the loving kindness of God, allowing we mere mortal humans, we worms, to come and pray to him and (coughs) sing to him and ask him for things. Hear, O Lord, when I pray with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. Now, the NASB adds the words, when thou didst ask, because they are implied by the Hebrew phrase. But the phrase here is, seek my face, and my heart said to you, thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. It's very similar to the New Testament phrase that we don't love God, or the reason that we love God is because he first loved us. David is saying the same thing here. That the only reason he is seeking the face of God is because God himself said, seek my face. And David in reaction is then seeking God. So God is the first cause of every relationship that he has with human beings. Again, I like David's theology. When thou didst say, seek my face, my heart said to thee, thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn thy servant away in anger. So similar to back in Psalm 24. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. And I emphasized verse 6 where he said, remember, O Lord, Thy compassion and thy loving kindness, for they are from everlasting. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but according to thy loving kindness, remember thou me 
for your goodness sake, O Lord. And I really emphasize that David is saying, yes, I'm sinful and rebellious, but when you think of me, when you look at me, think about your own compassion. Think about your own grace and loving kindness. That's the way that I want you to look at me, through the character of a loving and a kind and a gracious and a forgiving God. Okay, back in Psalm 27, verse 9, do not hide thy face from me. Do not turn thy servant away in your anger. Thou hast been my help. So he's able to look back and say, you're you're the one that did all this for me. I'm only sitting on the king's throne because of you. You've been my help. Now, as we move forward, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn thy servant away in anger. You have been my help. Therefore, David has confidence that God is going to continue to help him. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Now, a couple of times when we've seen this word salvation in David's writing, I have pointed out, and I will point out again, the way he is using salvation here does not always mean eternal salvation, the way we think of saved. He's saying that it is God who sustains his life, who protects him from his enemies, who keeps him on the throne. That is all part and parcel of the saving work of God, saving him from his enemies, saving him from wild animals, saving him from his enemies. And so he says, God is, Yahweh is the God of his salvation. Verse 10 says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me The implication is there's supposed to be an if or a despite. Some of your translations will add that word so that you understand what David is saying. He's saying, even if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will still take me up. So even if everybody on the planet abandons you, even those you are closest to, if your father and mother give up on you, the Lord will never give up on you. That is the character of God that is unchanging. Verse 11. Again, I like David's theology. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. So where are you going to learn about God? From God. Mm -hmm. And I like how consistently David says that. Teach me, O Lord, about you. You're not going to learn about God by hugging trees and listening to babbling brooks. And you're not going to learn it by osmosis. And you're not going to learn it by just walking through your depraved little life. God has to interrupt your life, introduce himself to you, and teach you the things of God because you're not going to know it any other way. And that's why I'm so happy that we have the written word of God to refer to. And that is the source of our education about God, but also our experience with God in this lifetime is part and parcel of that revelation of God to us and part of our education about God. God has to teach you about God or you're not going to know about God. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path. We've seen that phraseology a couple times in the Psalms here. It just means a smooth way. And do that, lead me on a level path because of my foes, because of my enemies. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. 
And then the NASB adds the words, I would have despaired. But the Hebrew just starts with the idea of, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The implication being, when I'm surrounded by enemies, when I'm surrounded by false witnesses, when I'm surrounded by those who are breathing out violence, when I'm surrounded by people who want to destroy my flesh, I would have despaired had it not been for the fact that I believed that I would see the goodness of God. That's how we walk through this life. We walk through life in this stupid, crazy, how many other adjectives can we think of for this world? This sin-soaked, God-forsaken world, and it would be really easy to despair in the midst of all this were it not for the fact that we know God, that God himself taught us about himself. And that gives us the confidence because of the goodness of Yahweh that we are going to make it all the way through this life and ultimately in his heavenly tabernacle where we're going to see the beauty of Yahweh and finally have time to just sit and meditate about him. Years ago, I quoted this several times, but I had a friend, a preacher, who once said, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to put me in hell forever. I don't know if you all have had the experience, but have you ever been sitting down to read your Bible or to pray or to think about God, and then your stupid little reptilian brain will get a hold of you and make you think something that, that just astounds you? It's like, well, what am I doing? What? How did I get to that? Everybody in the room is nodding. I'm glad it's not just me. I really look forward, and I think this is what David is getting at, I really look forward to the day when I can lay down this sinful flesh and be rid of the sin that so easily pervades this flesh and be rid of all of the chemical processes of this brain and finally sit down in the presence of God and just think about God, just meditate on God. Just learn from God and see the beauty of God and sit in the presence of the almighty king who saved me. I long for that day, and I don't think I'm alone in longing for that. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Perfect way to sum up that psalm. Wait for the Lord. The Lord is going to deliver you. The Lord is going to preserve you. Sometimes life here on this planet can seem difficult, and sometimes it can feel like you've been abandoned. Sometimes you're wondering where your help is going to come from. David's advice is always look to Yahweh. Always wait for him. He's faithful. He's going to deliver you. Therefore, knowing that, being aware of that, be strong. Take heart. Be of good courage. Same thing Jesus said when he was here on the planet. He said to his disciples frequently, fear not. It's me. I'm here. I'm in your midst. Take good courage. Be strong and let your heart take courage. And yes, wait for the Lord. Which takes us. To Psalm 28, 
which thematically you're about to see is very similar. The only real big difference in it is that David is going to contrast the righteous in God with the enemies of God. And he's going to describe two very distinct people groups. I have said for as many years as I have stood up with a Bible and talked that ever since Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden from that point forward, God designated all of humanity as two groups. You're either among the seed of the woman or you're the seed of the serpent. And those are the two groups. And there's nothing in between. There's no gray area. There's no moderately good people in the middle who are neither group. Everybody is in one of those two groups. You're going to see it here in the way that David writes about those that God has called, the righteous of God, and those who are the enemies of God. And again, there's no neutral group in the middle. To thee, O Yahweh, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. In other words, listen to me. Pay attention. Don't turn your ear away from me. Lest if thou be silent to me, I become like one of those who go down to the pit. Okay, so David does not want to be like one of those who go down into the pit, who end up under the judgment of God. That means he sees himself in the group, in the classification of those who are blessed by God, who are taught by God, who are sustained by God. And then he gives God all the credit and says, but if you don't tell me things... If you don't speak to me, if you're silent to me, I have no hope. Can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. David does not say, I'm going to be able to solve the problem. How many times have you heard me say, the solution to your problem cannot be you? David's saying the same thing here. The solution can only be God. God is his salvation. He is the light and if you are silent with me, I'll become like those who go down into the pit. So hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to thee for help. And when I lift up my hands toward thy holy sanctuary. That'd be correct. As I said earlier, the Jews to this very day pray toward the temple. And David, making his supplications to God, would be praying toward the sanctuary. I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Verse 3, do not drag me away with the wicked. What does that tell you about the wicked? Well, they're going to get dragged away. That's the first thing we know about them. They're going to fall under God's judgment, and they're going to be dragged off. And David is saying, make a separation between that judgment of your enemies and people like me, people you've chosen, people that you love, make that distinction. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Okay, we've seen that several times in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, that hypocrisy of the person who is so evil in his heart that he will say good things to your face. He'll flatter you. He'll encourage you. He'll tell you that it's all good, it's all fine, when in fact, in his heart, he's plotting to destroy you, to kill you, to rob you, to do damage, to do harm to you. So don't lump me in with them. Verse 4. But do requite them. Oh, yeah, yeah, they deserve punishment. So by all means, judge them. 
Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense. So David again, two groups. David says those that are your enemies deserve your judgment. Therefore, yes, as part of God's character, as part of God's holiness, his wrath, his judgment, his anger are all part of his demonstration of who he is. And David recognizes that. But also he is a loving and a gracious and a kind and long-suffering God. Therefore, he is demonstrating his grace and his goodness and his kindness in the way that he is gracious to some people. And he's going to demonstrate his holiness and his righteousness and his judgment in the way that he judges some people. And David is completely in line with that. Again, David's theological thinking is completely accurate. Yes, requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense. Because, verse 5, they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of his hands. So he will tear them down, and he will not build them up. But verse 6, blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. Something just changed in David's thinking. Because in verse 2, he said, Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. So he's asking God, listen to me, hear the voice of my supplication. But then he is confident in the character of God and the nature of God. And he realizes that God is going to hear him, always hears him. Verse 6, blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. I like so many of these psalms where you see that kind of transition in David's thinking. Where he starts out in trouble or starts out begging God or starts out praying to God for deliverance, praying for salvation. And then somewhere along the line in the psalm, as he is writing these things, he remembers the kind of God he's talking about. And then he corrects himself and says, but you have heard. I know you've heard. I know what you're like. I have history with you. The Lord is my strength and he is my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts and with my song, I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. There's the other group of people. You've got the enemies of God in their wickedness who aren't following the ways of God. But then you have the group of people who he is a defense to, the people who he is saving. And the reason he is a saving defense to those people is because those are the ones he anointed. So again, it goes back to God is the first cause. God chose those people. He anointed those people. Therefore, he is a strength to those people. Therefore, he is a saving defense to those people. Verse 9, save your people and bless your inheritance. Now he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the nation of people who God has chosen. And then 
This is a perfect example of praying the way that we've talked about several times as we're going through these psalms. One of the best, most biblical ways to pray to God is to pray his word back to him. To go back to him and say, you said you were going to do this. I'm just asking that you do it. Very much like Daniel having read out of Jeremiah that it was going to be 70 years of captivity. We read that Daniel then prays to God. Just do what you said you were going to do. It's been 70 years. Do it. Same thing David does here repeatedly. Goes back to God and says, I know what you're like. You have taught me who you are and what you are. And therefore, I can confidently say that you are my salvation and that you are my defense and that you are going to save your people and you are going to bless your own inheritance. And yet, despite knowing that, he goes to God and prays to God that he does it. Here, I'll give you a better example. Are you saved? Yes. That's one person. One person in this room is saved. The people on the internet couldn't hear the rest of you nodding your heads. The, the rattling sound didn't make it all the way up to here. But. So, okay, so you're saved. Yes. Okay. But do you ever find yourself praying to God, save me? Sure. Of course. In the midst of our troubles, in the midst of looking at ourselves, understanding our own sinfulness, looking at our own depraved state, looking at our rebellion, looking at the many ways that we have disappointed God and not lived up to even our own standard of who we think we ought to be and how we ought to act. And then we go to God again and we say, I know you're the unchanging God. I know you're the sovereign God, but forgive me. I know I'm forgiven in Christ. I know that's a finished work. I know the theology. I know all that. He's a perfect savior who saves perfectly. I get that. Save me. Forgive me. That's what David is doing here. He knows full well the promises God has made to Israel. And then he's going to God and praying that God just do the very thing that God has already promised he'd do. The Lord is their strength and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Save your people. Bless your inheritance. And be their shepherd also. And what an interesting little phrase to finish the psalm on. And carry them forever. The way a shepherd would carry them. Well, then you get to the New Testament. And Jesus says, which of you having a hundred sheep? If one wanders away, won't you leave the ninety and nine? And go get the one that wandered away or that fell into a ditch? And then Jesus uses the phrase, he'll take that lamb and put it on his shoulders and carry him back into the fold. I think Jesus was extrapolating on the very idea that David had talked about early. Because a good shepherd will do that for his sheep. He will make sure that his sheep are never defenseless. He will protect them. And if they wander off, he will go and get them and then carry them back to safety. That's what David's asking here. And remember, David was a shepherd as a young man. So he understands the shepherd analogy. And he says of God, be the shepherd to your inheritance and carry them. Have you ever needed to be carried? Sure. Sure, of course. Every once in a while, we all wander like sheep. We wander so far off the path that if God didn't come get us, 
and return us back into his fold, we're, we're just a goner because we don't have the ability to get ourselves back where we're supposed to be. We're too busy running around talking about bah and thinking we know what we're doing because we're sheep and we're not real bright. And so David is praying that God as the good shepherd, and then that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the New Testament and why he refers to himself as the good shepherd because he's the one who's going to carry us. And I really like that David said, carry us everlastingly. Not just through this life, not just here on earth, not just while the enemies are attacking, not just when I've tripped up. You need to carry me all the time. Because if it's ever up to me, I'll mess it up. So I really like David's admission that he needs a shepherd to support him, to pick him up, to carry him, to keep him in the fold, to be his protection, to be his salvation, to set him up on a rock. He is the only hiding place. So David sees in God everything necessary to get him through this life so that he can end up in the tabernacle of God, so that he can see the beauty and the glory of God, so that he can sit down and finally really truly concentrate on the things of God. I like that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.